Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. And every Astro fan will recognize today's guest. He's an Astros Hall of Famer who spent three decades calling games from inside your TV set, deep inside there. It's my fellow Mizzou J School alum, Bill Brown, who sadly isn't wearing Mizzou gear or his orange Hall of Fame jacket. Welcome back, Brownie. Thank you, Robert. Good to see you again. And uh, yeah, it's it's been very interesting. I was actually at uh, a sports collectible show over the weekend. Got to see Roger Clemens and Dusty Baker and some of those guys. So it's it's heating up again. Baseball's in the air. Oh, definitely, definitely. And uh, your new book just released is entitled Baseball's Bizarre Season, chronicles the 1964 Major League season. And I'd say you intermix it with your perspective as a Cards fan growing up in Missouri. And I'm just kind of wondering, is that how you would describe it? And, and what compelled you to write about this particular season? That is how I would describe it. Uh, what compelled me to write about it was the end of the Astros season <laughs> uh, last fall and uh, the possibility that the Astros, Rangers, and Mariners all could have been in a three-way tie and have a playoff. And I wondered when was the last time that had happened. And uh, I don't know the answer to that. I think it might have been the 1967 Impossible Dream Red Sox season, but I did not even look that up. What I flashed back to was 1964 and uh, the Cardinals and the Phillies and the Reds. And then even, even the Giants were in the picture going into the last weekend. So there were four teams that year. And I started reading about it. I ordered some books and it brought back a lot of memories. And as you know, a lot of books have been written on that season. Yes. And I'd have been the best pennant race ever, depending on your, your point of view. But I, I just thought in reading these other books, well, there's so much out there that's already been written. Anything that would be written now would have to have a little different perspective on it. So that's how I happened upon the growing up as a 17-year-old Cardinal fan and attacking it from that angle. You kind of have a lot of details and conversations that you had as a kid with your fam family. Is, is that stuff that you just did creatively or do you actually remember those conversations that specifically? I, I actually used a lot of fiction, <laughs> to be honest with you. I, I just didn't think that our family was uh, all that interesting growing up, a pretty normal family. So I felt that before I got into the baseball pennant race in the early part chronologically of the year of 1964, wasn't much going on in baseball. So um, I just invented a few things with our family. Now, some of those things actually happened, but they didn't happen in the year of 1964. So I, I sort of transposed everything into that year to make it what I felt was a little more interesting read until we got heavily into the baseball part. Yeah, film producers would love you for that part. Um, <laughs> two, two of the major figures from that 64 season just have fascinating Houston ties. The managers who met in the World Series were Johnny Keene with the Cardinals and Yogi Berra with the Yankees. And I'm going to come back to Yogi a little bit later, but how did Houston change Johnny Keene's life? What's the connection there? Well, he played in Houston uh, with the Buffs. They were a Cardinal farm club, and um, he got beaned in a game. He was never the same again. Well, he, he played again, but what that taught him, I think, was that his future was not as a player. And the Cardinals then invited him to be a player manager, and he went on to manage, as you know, but spent a lot of years in the minor leagues before he reached the major league job with the St. Louis Cardinals. So it really did change his life in terms of the fact that he had always wanted to be a player, and he found out that his future was in managing instead. Yeah, and it was uh, a Galveston pitcher. So there was a Galveston team that people don't know that hit a Houston pitcher that caused him to just it changed his entire life like you said yeah and as you know uh well we had dickie thon here and and of course he continued to play after he was beaned but he was never the same guy and and this has happened um down through the years you know it's it's amazing to me robert that that there haven't been more 
stories like that in baseball. And I, I always worried, you know, remember the year that Billy Wagner got hit with the line drive when he was pitching in Arizona and they carted him off the field on a stretcher. And I, I've always worried about things like that. And I'm, I'm frankly surprised that that does not happen more often because there's so little reaction time for a batter to a pitch or a pitcher to a line drive. What I thought about as you go through the names of that 64 championship cards team, who you listen to and watch from your hometown of Sedalia, Missouri, is all the legendary broadcasters on that team. Tim McCarver, Bob Euchre, who's still plugging away, Mike Shannon, who did radio for the cards for decades. You were listening to Jack Buck and Harry Carey on the radio. Over the years, I'm guessing this team that you grew up watching and listening to, you met those guys, maybe befriended them as a broadcaster, right? Yeah, and a couple of other guys were gone from the scene by the time I started listening uh milo hamilton <laughs> and because he was in st louis along with uh, harry carey and jack buck and also uh there was another broadcaster named joe garagiola who was there at that time too and that, that was sort of mid 50s so a little little early for me to be a listener at that point robert but yeah all these hall of fame guys and then i, I never really met harry carey but of course with milo here we, we developed that long-term friendship you know jack buck became for me the guy um i wanted to be jack buck i just liked his style i thought he was uh, a reporter he, he didn't quite build the drama the way Harry did, but he he was great in his own right in doing that. And I think even better after Harry left the scene there in St. Louis and Jack became the guy. And um, he was just such a friendly guy. We'd sit down and have a cheeseburger in St. Louis. And, you know, you just felt like you had known him forever if you grew up listening to him. And then you're sitting down having a conversation. He'd, he'd interview even me on his pregame show, which was a, a tremendous honor. But I always felt a little ill at ease with sitting next to a Hall of Famer asking me questions. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, and, and I got a chance to meet Jack Buck myself when I was at University of Missouri. I was covering a Cardinals game up there. And, you know, I also, you know, I mentioned Bob Euchre, who's still going and going and going. And, and Euchre was somebody that I don't know, did you have much of a chance to get to meet him? Because I know the Astros for a long time, they didn't face the American League. They were in the National League for most of your broadcast career here. Yes. And we had him on the air with us a few times. And of course, he had us rolling on the floor. Uh, the, guy, the man is just so gifted with his humor. I did try to talk to him for this book, but couldn't couldn't reach him. He just turned 90. And as you know, when you're doing a book about 64, a lot of people aren't around anymore and some are in bad health, etc. So uh, that was an issue in doing this book. Are there any details or stories from researching this that surprised you? Yeah. You know, I, I have to say, Robert, um, you know, some of the personalities, uh, I knew a little bit about the Yogi Berra situation uh, with the Yankees, but um, ownership of the Cardinals, that I didn't know much about that. That kind of surprised me. As you know, uh, Gussie Bush was the owner of the team at that time from Anheuser-Busch, and uh, he was just very impatient to win. I, I wasn't quite surprised by that because most owners are, but he, he fired the general manager, you know, Bing Devine, right in the middle of the 64 season, and then he was going to fire Johnny Keene, but he couldn't very well do that when they won the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, you talked about the ownership. You didn't get much detail into it, but I just thought it was interesting because I didn't know this. There was a Houston group that was looking to buy the Cardinals at one point, right? Yes. And um, that was uh, back in the days of Judge Hoffines and R.E. Bob Smith and uh, Craig Cullinan. Uh, they, they were. They were negotiating to buy the Cardinals and uh, they thought they had a deal. But in fact, that's when Anheuser-Busch got involved. They just could not let the Cardinals leave St. Louis. So that uh, blew up that deal. But yeah, they, they could have been here uh, before, you know, they got the expansion team in 62. They could have been here in the late 50s had that deal gone through. Well, I haven't had you on since the Astros championship in 2022. What was it like to watch that playoff run? You, you got to watch it for fun. And with your historical baseball brain, 
Was that 11 and two postseason one of the more impressive performances? It was. It was, Robert. Um, I, I thought it was fantastic as a fan. Really, really enjoyed it. Uh, a lot of drama, and, and especially after the experience of 19, you know, thinking you were going to have a World Series champion that year, and then it got away in the final game. It was it was satisfying to see the team finish the deal, and I thought it, it really validated a lot of things that had been hanging over the team since 2017. So that put to bed a lot of those issues for, I think, for me and a lot of fans, too, uh, to win that. And um, just the, the whole experience of being a fan, I thought, was fantastic. I, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed just kind of kicking back and Watching the team from afar, I think it's been uh, quite a ride and uh, just so exceptional for the fans to watch this. What was the name of your book that you did on Jose Altuve? Do you remember that? Um, I'll have to think about it, but that's that's some years ago. Gosh, you know, it was so much fun, but he wouldn't talk about himself. That was the issue. He's just so humble that he, he wouldn't talk about himself. And so I had to go to other people and, you know, just a story that's been told down through the years of how he wouldn't go home. They sent him home and he came back and got another tryout and just kept moving forward from that point on. I just asked that because I was thinking as, you know, we we're talking about the 22 championship and what the Astros have gone over, you know, what they've kind of gone through over the last few years. Is that something that you might want to revisit that book or redo something because there's so much that has happened with Altuve since then. And also it just, it, it, it's really frustrating, not just as an Astros fan, but as a journalist, that Jose Altuve has gotten painted nationally as this enemy. And I just feel like there needs to be a book that basically says Altuve, not the bad guy you think or something like yeah. that, because it, 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 you know, it's just, it's amazing, you know, how everything that he has done has gotten put through this national lens of, you know, he is the somehow face of what happened with the Astros when it's the opposite. And really Jose Altuve should be somebody that every baseball fan, really embraces and like this is an incredible story of this five foot five kid that comes out of nowhere i mean he's now one of the greatest playoff performers of all time not to mention one of the greatest second basemen of all time right yeah that's a good point you're bringing up and i think there is uh, legitimacy to that i don't know if i'll be the guy to do it but hopefully somebody will be but it's, it's always been my position that oh maybe 10 years from now when all these guys who were on the 2017 team have retired. Uh, some things will come out that will give us some perspective from that year. And I, I think we're going to have to wait a long time uh, for that to emerge, unfortunately. So my my concept would be let's wait until all that stuff comes out and then we can go back and revisit history a little bit. If you don't mind, Brownie, I want to play a little game called story time with you because you're really good at this stuff. <laughs> okay. And I'll throw the name of an Astros character from the past and hopefully you can throw out an anecdote or just a favorite memory of, of those guys. And I'm going to start with your first Astros era when you first got here. And this goes back to the book. Yogi Berra is a huge part, like I said, of that 1964 season. But, you know, he's a bench coach for the Astros from 86 to 89. He got here when you did. Do you have a story or a memory from him and his Astros days? I uh, went to do an interview with him on TV one time. And I said, um, well, Yogi, I want to ask you about whatever it was. And he said, just ask it. Don't rehearse me. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Yogi's got this this image of being a lovable guy. And I think that image was and he was a nice guy, uh, but he just he didn't want to be a big star. He wanted to just fit in with the guys. So he was uncomfortable, I think, with interviews. I think the New York media made him out to be somebody who was always funny and he really wasn't. But I was around him a few times and people would say, uh, hey, Yogi, what time is it? And he said both times, you mean now? <laughs> <laughs> so he would say things that he didn't intend to be funny, but they were funny. 
I think he was a very good manager. I talked to Bobby Richardson for the book about it, and and they were best of friends. You know, he was shocked that that Yogi was fired after that '64 season, but of course he went on to have success, as you know, uh, managing after that. And uh, so I think I think it was proven that this guy really knew his baseball. And you know, Craig Biggio would say, you know, everybody makes fun of him, and and I, I think he was mischaracterized as somebody who wasn't smart. He might not have been an author of a book type smart. Uh, or, you know, a mathematical genius type smart. But Biggio pointed out to me, he said, you know, he'd walk by on the bench in the second or third inning and he'd walk by me and and he'd say something. And sure enough, in the sixth inning, whatever he had said was happening. Uh, he just had a baseball intuition that very few people had. Yeah, I don't know how you can't call him smart because a lot of those quotes were like bare baseball wisdom. And some of them made sense in a deeper way and not just you know, if you knew that part about his story, but just know about his baseball career, he's a catcher. He's the leader, the guy behind the plate calling the games on the greatest run in baseball history with the Yankees had back in the 50s. Right. Right. And, you know, he'd say things like uh, he'd be telling somebody how to play left field in Yankee Stadium, which had the, you know, the rim of the stadium would uh, keep the sun and and uh, from from, you know, would be in the left fielder's eyes for a while. And then it would be in shade and it was very difficult to play there. So he would say it gets late early out there. Uh, but that pretty well describes the the plight of a Yankee left fielder. <laughs> yeah, he, he would explain the complicated stuff in this simple manner. They just made it all work together. And and, and next up, I want to give you a couple of choices. I, I'll take something from something from both, a story from both, or if you've just got something from one of the guys. But I know these guys got great stories with them. Charlie Kerfeld or Larry Anderson, part of the '86 great bullpen that went to the NLCS. Well, Kerfeld um, actually was born in Knob Noster, Missouri, which I'm sure you know, but that's, you know, 10 miles from Sedalia. So I brought that up to him. He said, oh, I moved at an early age, so he didn't want to talk about that too much. But I remember the uh, first year I came here, 87, as you mentioned, uh, Charlie was holding out on his contract because he didn't like the uh, small raise he felt the Astros were offering him. And of course, he had no arbitration rights yet, so he really couldn't do much other than sign the contract. But he finally signed the contract after holding out for a while. And uh, he put 22 boxes of jello in a clause in the contract that that's what uh, the Astros had to sweeten the pot to get him to sign the deal. 22 boxes of jello. I think it was orange jello. So yes. he loved the pinstripe uniforms. I absolutely remember the orange jello story. And then, of course, Larry. You know, he was such a character. And fortunately, a lot of Astros fans will just go, oh, he's the guy that got you Jeff Bagwell. But that guy was uh, he was a prankster. Both of those guys. I mean, it really kept that 86 bullpen loose. And you had some serious guys, you know, in the Astros starting rotation. So it was kind of a dichotomy. I, I don't know if Nepper was much of a jokester or, you know, Nolan was much of a jokester. So those guys kind of kept it all a little bit light. Right. They did. Um, so what Larry Anderson would do, one thing that he would do, and and he was he had a, a large bag of tricks, was to sit in an airport, and he had a some some kind of a gizmo like a fishing line, and it was attached to a twenty dollar bill. So this twenty dollar bill would be on the on the concourse floor in the middle of the airport, and someone would bend over to pick it up, and he'd reel in the twenty dollar bill. <laughs> he'd yank yeah. it out out of their hand right when they're picking it up. No, he, he had a lot of routines like that. And uh, funny, funny guy. Just a great person. Oh, man. And he's, he's a good broadcaster now, too, with the Phillies. He's done a wonderful job with them. Bigger than life personality. It's, it's time for Lima time. And if you have less than about 30 Lima stories, I'm going to be disappointed. But, man, he was fine, man. He was just incredible. Lima and his salsa band entertained when we were in the Dominican for um, 
a uh, spring training series. They were great. <laughs> I couldn't believe how good he was. He was a singer and, you know, he had the whole band with him. Um, but after a game in the hotel, they performed. And then I remember one time it had been set up at Minute Maid Park that he would perform out in the center field, whatever club area they called that at the time. And after a game, well, he happened to be the starting pitcher that night and he just got crushed and he was gone by the fourth inning. But after the game, he put on his best entertainment face and he was singing and dancing out in the center field pavilion area. <laughs> the, the story I remember about him the most, though, and, and what kind of really ruined his career was the move to uh, Enron Field uh, because he was, I thought, the quintessential Astrodome pitcher. If you were to go back and research his home and road statistics from the Astrodome years, it would point out to you that he is probably more than anybody else was an Astrodome pitcher. He had great success in the Astrodome where those uh, 385-foot fly balls would be caught. And on the road, his ERA was, I think, probably over five. He just could not keep the ball in the ballpark on the road. So then the, the team moves to Enron Field, and the pitchers are the first ones to come out before the first game and take batting practice, as always. And he's one of the first guys in the cage. He hits a ball into the Crawford boxes, and Lima could not hit. I mean, this was, uh, you know, like the equivalent of a 600-foot Mickey Mantle home run. For him to hit a ball in the Crawford boxes, which was, you know, 312 feet or something that ruined him <laughs> i think when he saw that he could hit a ball in the crawford boxes he started thinking i wonder how many of these i'm going to give up and he gave up a bunch i think he gave up 50 that first year of enron field nobody loved the spotlight more than him i just remember he would come to rockets games and i was uh, working for the rockets at the time shooting the games on the sideline and i would look over at lima and he didn't know me from adam and i would look over and he had a drink in his hand and you know, he's just having a blast and he would he would see I'm looking at him and he would just give me a wink and a smile. And, you know, it's just he was great. Yeah, he was a showman. He was a showman. <laughs> well, it looks like uh, Billy Wagner should be in Cooperstown by next year with the voting. Do you have a favorite Billy the Kid memory? Billy used to come up and sit by me on the, on the airplane, believe it or not. Uh, you know, the broadcasters and TV production people used to sit kind of in the middle of the plane. The players would be in the back, the manager and coaches would be up in the front first class section his teammates used to give him grief because he'd come up and sit down next to me i was usually in a row by myself i was i would put the tray tables down and do my work and have a meal there and that sort of thing and uh bill just he just wanted to come up and talk gosh you know we talked about all kinds of things uh his kids and you know i didn't really get into the whole story that's well known now about growing up and you know painting a strike zone on the side of a barn and throwing a ball at that and all the things that he did with a broken arm you know twice he broke his right arm so he became a left-hander but but we just talked we just talked about anything and everything that came to mind um and he was he was such a good guy and just a good friend but as far as um you know his pitching you know certainly just a, a closer that um is unparalleled in terms of uh, being left-handed and throwing that hard and always being available and I don't know why he's punished for not pitching uh, more innings because he did what the manager wanted him to do, pitch one inning at a time. He was willing to pitch more than that. But I, I don't understand the voters not voting him in. And what infuriates me the most about this previous vote is that there were three voters who voted for him last year, and those three did not vote for him this year. And... They had empty spaces on their ballots. They could vote for 10 and they didn't vote for 10. I don't understand the thinking behind that logic at all. The other thing is he gets punished for his postseason, which was maybe 11 innings or something. It was something ridiculously small. And I've always said like, hey, if you're going to punish Billy Wagner for his postseason, we can start doing that to Ted Williams and 
Um, there's other baseball players that are in the Hall of Fame. You would even consider them like elite of the elite Hall of Famers that didn't have the best postseasons in the world. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, uh, yeah, I, I do believe as you do that Billy will be in next year. So we'll, we'll cool down a little bit when that happens, but I've never been an advocate of allowing only baseball writers to vote for that award. Last guy I wanted to ask you about, just because uh, we, we just had the news that he's going to the Astros Hall of Fame is Kim Caminetti. And, and you're a part of the Astros Hall of Fame process, too. So I'm just kind of curious. A lot of people might wonder, Kim Caminetti, if you look at his Astros career, it's it's all right. It's nothing spectacular. You know, what went behind putting him in the Astros Hall of Fame? Because, you know, there's also some stuff that he did that we know, you know, was not good. But he also came out against the PEDs and, and all of that sort of stuff. So, so how all did, did that work? And what did you think about that whole process? Well, I, I was happy that we voted him in. I thought he was deserving. And Doug Rader was another who I feel should be in. We don't have many third basemen in the Astros Hall of Fame yet, but it'll happen. I, I thought, yes, that he had his best years after he left here. Certainly in San Diego when he was an MVP and uh, his career really blossomed. He started hitting all those home runs and he's admitted the reasons why. But uh, for me, he epitomized playing the game hard. Uh, playing the game well. His arm was just incredible. We all tell stories about his arm. But uh, his commitment to excellence and uh, the way he threw his body around without any regard for trying to manage it for a long career or anything like that, I thought was exemplary. I thought he was a good teammate. And, um, you know, it was a close vote, but we were, I think all of us were happy with the way it came out. And uh, I, you know, from what I've sampled on social media, the fans liked it. So I, I think Robert, you know, even if even if you're steeped in baseball history, you realize sometimes numbers don't always tell the true story of somebody. And you get in these committee meetings and people talk and uh, one memory invokes another. And I just I was very comfortable with having him be an Astros Hall of Famer. Greg Lucas told me a couple of weeks ago that he's a pretty serious guy. Was there any fun stuff with Ken Caminetti? What, what was he like behind the scenes? Yeah, he would. Uh, <laughs> somebody would say something to him. And he'd look at he'd look at him and say, "You trying to get on me?" <laughs> you know, he, he was because I could tell that people had uh, really uh, picked on him as far as uh, maybe not being the sharpest uh, tool in the drawer, shall we say, on some issues of, of which I was not a party, so I didn't know what you know the back backstory to the player joking between themselves. But I could tell people had been on him about different things, and and yet uh, uh, he, he understood. He was the butt of some jokes, and he was willing to do that. He was willing to absorb that. <laughs> Uh, before we go, I just want to remind everybody to check out Baseball's Bizarre Season. And Brownie, can you tell us where everybody can find that? Yeah, it's on Amazon, Robert. That's the only place it's available. I hope everybody enjoys it. You know, uh, I'd say the people who were alive in 64 are probably going to enjoy it a little bit more, but who knows? <laughs> it was fun to write. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's fantastic. See, I mean, it just tells you everything you need to know because there's multiple baseball books written about one season that's yes. now 60 years ago. So it's pretty amazing. Well, thanks so much, Brownie. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Robert. My pleasure. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.